please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. Stephen Foreman. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here tonight and thank all of you for coming out to, to listen to this. So I'm going to tell a very long story uh, that started a long time ago um, with work that myself and my colleagues around the country uh, were doing back in the 1970s and then bringing up to the present date is that how that story unfolded. And that's why it's called Cellular Immunotherapy for Treatment of Cancer from Transplant to Gene Therapy. And I'll, I'll hopefully make this all clear uh, as I possibly can. So I'm going to talk in two parts. The first part of this talk is going to be about how stem cell transplant is done, why we do it, what kind of results do we have, what insights did we get from that work that led us on a journey to try to find a better therapy for many cancers utilizing immunotherapy. So, you know, this, this, this work doesn't go back that far. Um, the, this, the, the stem cells that we have in our bodies and the bone marrow was only discovered like in the 1940s to be true, to be there. Um, uh, this slide summarized some of those observations where um, it was shown that if you irradiated an animal that would wipe out their bone marrow and then infuse cells from another animal, um, you could protect the animal from dying of bone marrow failure. And that led over a long period of time, mostly from work done in Cooperstown, New York, by a colleague I'm gonna talk about in a minute, to the first successful bone marrow transplant, which was for a child with an immune deficiency in Minnesota in 1968. And over time, um, us, our colleagues in Seattle and New York, um, developed this therapy to be used for people who have cancers of the bone marrow, mostly leukemia. It is currently the most common form of cellular therapy in medicine. There's really nothing quite like it. And it's the only one that's stem cell based. And I'll explain a little bit more about what that is. So in some ways, the first part of this talk is the background for the second part of the talk. So when we talk about stem cells, we're talking about a cell up here that you can find in the bone marrow if you look really, really, really hard. There are not a lot of them. But what they do is it's this cell that divides and differentiates and forms all the cells that are in your bloodstream and in your lymph gland and in your immune system. So the white cells that fight infection, the red cells that carry oxygen, the platelets that clot blood, the B cells and T cells that respond to infection when you have it are all made in the bone marrow and they're all derived from a single cell. So you can kind of get a sense of well, if you could move those cells from one person to another, you could recapitulate the whole, the whole thing. This was a very big deal. Um, this is a picture of Don Thomas, a colleague of mine who I work with in Seattle, uh, receiving the Nobel Prize in 1993 for discovering how to do bone marrow transplant as a treatment for people with leukemia. So it was a big, big day for him, big day for the field. I would say it's a big day for all the patients who derive benefit from his, uh, from his work. Our program uh, started in 1976. Um, we worked with Dr. Thomas in Seattle. Uh, our program was started by 
uh, these two gentlemen. Um, he is a member of the National Academy, so I, I think that fits with this evening. Um, and Carl Bluma, who came from Freiburg, Germany, to start the program at City of Hope, and they hired me uh, back, in, back in the 70s, and we opened in 1976. So let me tell you a little bit about how we do these transplants and use these stem cells. So the, what I'm gonna focus on mostly uh, is allogeneic transplant. And what that means is we're taking cells from another person and infusing them into a recipient who is the patient with disease. Autologous means when we take your own cells out, sometimes put them in the freezer, thaw them and put them back when we need them. Sometimes we genetically modify them, and if there's time, I'll talk about what we're doing with those cells as it relates to HIV infection towards the end of this talk. But what we do is we identify a donor, which I'll go over in a minute, and we give the person with leukemia very, very intensive therapy, radiation, chemotherapy, doses that we can't ordinarily give in the clinic because the consequences of utilizing that intensive therapy is to wipe out the bone marrow. The people who were exposed to radiation in Chernobyl died of bone marrow failure. It wiped their bone marrows out because, and we couldn't rescue them because there was no donors identified that we could take cells from and put back into those people. But so in some ways, some patients have told me that what we do with them is we give them a very controlled Chernobyl experience, which is not the nicest way to say what we do, but I think it gives you a very strong sense of what the patient uh, goes through. So we, we ablate the organ, but we're really not trying, we're not trying to do that. What we're trying to do is ablate the leukemia and make it go away. And a casualty of that effort is that we wipe out the normal bone marrow at the same time. Uh, we then infuse the stem cells from the donor and they will regrow all the cells that I told you about in the previous slide, the red cells, the immune cells, the white cells, the platelets, all grow back. And I'll come back to this idea about the donor anti-tumor effect um, um, in a little while, and you'll see what the connection is. So this is a cartoon that really just shows the process. We have a donor identified where we collect the stem cells from the bone marrow or the blood. It's a technique we have that can do that. The patient undergoes this very intensive therapy over about, it's called conditioning, over about a 10-day period. When it's done, the donor cells are infused, and over a period of about two to three to four weeks, those stem cells will find their way back into the bone marrow, set up shop, and begin to grow. And within about two or three weeks, the white count in the bloodstream, which goes to zero, will start coming up. 100 one day, 300 the next, 500 the next, then within a week or two after that, the cells are basically normal. And they undergo a process of recovery and immune reconstitution that goes over a period of months. Um, but what we were really trying to do is have them go forward with a new immune system and leave the disease that brought them to us behind. Now, as you got from the first slide that I showed about the stem cell and all the cells that it makes, when we do transplant these stem cells, it produces, as I said, the neutrophils, the red cells, the immune cells, um, even the cells that find their way into the lung, the liver, the spleen, and even the brain will be repopulated by cells from the donor. And the immune system that we transfer is of the donors. And 
that's a very quirky thing. Uh, um, and when we do this, if for the patient, if they were blood group A, and we transplant them with somebody whose blood group is O, with stem cells, they're going to switch blood types from A to O because that's what their donor does. We've even seen people who had no shellfish allergy but got a transplant from a donor who was shellfish allergic, and they became allergic. So it really demonstrates that the transfer of characteristics of the, um, of the donor uh, will go. Uh, will go, I mean, will we'll be present. Um, one of my more creative colleagues a number of years ago thought this would be a great screenplay, that, you know, you get a transplant, you rob a bank, you leave your blood there, and they arrest your donor. Because it's their DNA that's left at the, uh, at, at the crime scene. So what about these donors? The donors usually, when we first started, as I'm going to show you back in the 70s, are really only from siblings. Um, if you had, you're looking for genes that are inherited from the mom, genes inherited from the dad, and you're looking that each child has inherited the same set of genes. And if you have one sibling, um, your chances of being a match are one in four, which is why we um, were always happy in those days uh, to see families come to us who are either Catholic, Mormon, <laughs> Orthodox Jewish because they had lots of kids. And once you get around seven, eight, nine children, the odds are very high that there's going to be a match in that family, assuming everybody is who they say they are. Okay. <laughs> and so there are stories to tell, you know, uh, of what we discovered and what we've been told. But in principle, the more siblings, the better the chances, given what I've described to you uh, so far. But you know, the, the hard thing for us was that we would see people who needed a transplant and didn't have a match. And so what were we going to do? And so a colleague of mine uh, in Seattle and a number of other people around the country started what was called the National Marrow Donor Program, the NMDP. You know it as Be the Match if you've seen it at all advertised around town. And as you can see on this slide, there are now 22 million people on this registry worldwide. Um, and so most of the transplants that we do at the City of Hope actually come from unrelated donors. Um, and that has expanded the possibility that somebody who needs a transplant will have a transplant because we'll find the donor either in the family or in the registry. And now they're cord blood, umbilical cord blood banks that, uh, that are, these umbilical cord grafts are full of stem cells. And so we use them also. But it means that when we see somebody needs a transplant, the odds are that we're going to find, and now we can even do transplants with siblings who are only half-matched. That's been a huge innovation in the last, I would say, five years. So very new, and I think that's what also speaks to the issue of why we can generally do it uh, for most people um, uh, these days. So in 1977, uh, when this whole effort started, or really got started, um, there were only two diagnoses that we transplanted aplastic anemia and acute leukemia, and was only bone marrow from siblings. But now, in 2020, it's all the diseases that can occur in the marrow or the lymph system can be treated and cured by a stem cell transplant. And that's the list you see here. And there are even some solid tumors um, for which we use an autologous transplant, but I'm not going to focus on that today. And it isn't just bone marrow from a sibling. It's, you know, unrelated donors, parents, children, cord blood, 
gene-modified cells. Um, we've got a lot of options, and we try to match the option with what the situation is for, uh, for the patient to best help them get over the disease that they came to us in the first place about. And these are just a lot of the other diseases that um, we've taken care of. Some are non-malignant. You see a disease called scleroderma on here, and we've seen patients cured of their pretty awful autoimmune disease with a stem cell transplant. There are patients with multiple sclerosis who came to us for whom we were able to help also. It's an autoimmune disease, so if we can change their immune system, we can get rid of the causal um, cell that's mediating the problem in the first place. So at the end of the day, what are we talking about? We're talking about curing disease. So this is a survival curve. These are patients with a disease called aplastic anemia, one of the first diseases that we were transplanting, and it shows survival. And it shows that for this disease, we can cure now a good 80% of the people. And so they go on with life three, six, nine years later. And you can see that there's no drops in the curve. A drop means that something bad happened. But when the curve is flat, it means that people are going on with their lives having left the disease behind. My focus as an oncologist obviously is cancer. And this is a survival curve of uh, people with um, leukemia, a certain type of leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And you can see that you know, the curve kind of flattens out after a couple of years and that people are going on living without recurrence of their disease. Um, you can see down here that there are patients who do have a recurrence, and our job is really to figure out a way to get this number down to zero. Um, and that's what we spend most of our time trying to do. But I'm just giving you a sense of what it is for people, uh, what they're looking for, and we want them on this part of the curve. When I first started, we didn't do anybody over the age of 30, which in this room excludes me and most of the people in this room. <laughs> um, and we wrote an article about it. When we first began to cross that 30-year-old barrier, that was a big deal that we were transplanting people's success over the age of 30. And then over these next few decades, as it says here, uh, so we did, 30 years later, we're able to transplant people in their 70s. And so we don't let age, per se, get in the way of the attempt to cure the disease. Um, obviously, you've got to be in some reasonable vibrancy and, and health. But you can see that these survival curves, like this one, out at, you know, at two years, you know, people are, about 70% of the people are still alive and in remission. I mean, we don't create immortality, so people you know, succumb to other things in life. But they don't die of that disease, for the most part, for which they underwent uh, transplant. And so we don't have an age limit anymore. We size them up as they come through the door and figure out what the best approach. Um, you know, there's a phrase, once a transplant patient, always a transplant patient. And that's very much true for us. So we have every year a transplant reunion uh, where often people meet their donors for the first time. And this is a picture of one a few years ago. Uh, of a Hollywood guy meeting his donor from San Francisco, a uh, guy in Santa Monica meeting his, uh, meeting his donor from Israel, and a young kid who was adopted by a family meeting his donor who came from Kenya. So these are truly dramatic events, you know, and I've been doing this a long time, and it never gets old, and it's always emotional, and it, it's the just the coolest thing. And we get people buttons when they come to the reunion 
uh, it shows how many years after transplant they are. And the interesting thing, we didn't see this until it, it was right in front of us, the interesting thing is that patients go around looking for other patients who have numbers larger than their own. What they're looking for are people who are ahead of them on the survival curve and are, you know, in life. And so that's why we like to invite a lot of the long-term survivors back because they are the inspiration for those who are early on after a, a transplant. And when all is said and done for this big fiesta that we have every May, it looks something like this. So, um, you know, I, I realize I'm in Orange County, but we are big Dodger people up in uh, at the City of Hope, but these are all patients who've come back for the reunion for, um, for a celebration, a pause, uh, see their nurses, see their doctors, see each other, they go home and, and we go back to work. So why am I providing you with this introduction uh, to the subject at hand about immunotherapy? And it's based on this observation that came in 1979. So this is a survival curve. And it shows several lines on the curve. And what it shows are living in remission. Remember, this is in the 70s. So these are patients from a long time ago under very different circumstances. But this was published, and what it showed the following is, I told you that we do transplants between people who are matched, but they are not twins. So it, and I've already told you that that new immune system is going to behave differently in that person than it did than the old one did, including recognizing that the person that the cells were put into is different. And it can recognize that difference and cause what's called a graft versus host reaction. So all patients getting stem cell transplant get drugs to try to prevent that reaction. And if it does occur, we give them drugs to try to quiet it down because it can cause considerable harm. So we spend a lot of time taking care of people who have this reaction. So we always thought of it as a bad thing because it causes harm. And this paper was published by colleagues of mine in Seattle where they looked at the long-term survival of a group of patients with leukemia who had the reaction and those who didn't have the reaction and the first time I saw this, I thought, oh, they mislabeled the slide because it looks like the people who had the reaction are doing better than those who did not. But what this was the first demonstration of was, was that the donor immune system was recognizing something in the recipient on the leukemia cell and was wiping it out. Because the major difference between that line and this line is that there's more recurrent leukemia than here. And it, it was the first recognition that that graft versus host reaction could be therapeutic. So we don't try to shut it off completely, and we, we do things to try to quiet it, but getting a donor transplant is, has some therapy with that immune system. And the other reason we know this even more dramatically is these people were identical twins, syngeneic. There's no immune difference. There's no GVH at all. They can't tell the difference. They can shift cells back and forth, and they get no immune suppression. And they have a higher recurrence rate than those people who get a donor transplant, despite that it's safer to do. So there are times when we see 
a patient who has an identical twin, and they have leukemia, and we may be more worried about the leukemia. Uh, we are always worried about it, excuse me, where we have to choose between the identical twin and the matched donor, the matched sibling, even though it's a more risky transplant, we almost always choose the matched donor because we think we've got a better chance of getting them through and cured. It doesn't do any good to do a transplant and have the disease come back. The whole idea is get rid of it. So this was the first demonstration, pretty convincingly, in humans that the human immune system, namely the T cells, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, can recognize cancer and eliminate it. Um, and so the question is, how could we take advantage of this? What's, what's mediating this are T cells. I mean, your immune system is divided up into the B cells that make antibody and T cells that react to viruses and infection. When you get your flu vaccine, you're basically activating both arms, but mainly the T cells to be ready if they see that virus again to react, uh, to react against it. And, you know, the T cells can be, I mean, you have all types. These are T cells that have never been educated. They've not seen anything yet. They're waiting to learn. Then you have memory cells that have already been instructed how to react. So, for instance, when you get the flu vaccine and it induces immunity, if you see that virus, your body's already primed to react to it and you won't get sick. Or if you do get sick, it'll be a milder form. And these cells hang around for life. You won't need to be vaccinated again unless other things happen to you. So you've got, you know, given who we are as a group, we've got a lot of immunologic memory in our bloodstream of all the things we've ever seen in our life uh, that we've confronted, reacted to, and are there ready to see it again. Uh, sometimes that immunity wanes, which is why we all should be getting our shingles vaccines because we're trying to boost the immunity that may have waned to prevent us from getting uh, shingles. So these are T cells. I'm going to go past this. So it leads now to the second part of this talk about cancer immunotherapy. And what I'm talking about is how to empower T cells to eradicate, can eradicate cancer. You hear about cancer vaccines. That's still in its infancy, I would say, trying to find the vaccine that will do for you for cancer what it does for you for the flu. You've read a lot about what are called maybe immune checkpoint inhibitors. You know, when you, when you get a vaccination or you get sick, part of what makes you sick is your immune system is trying to get rid of the infection and you feel like hell. And you probably wonder, well, why does that stop? And it stops because the immune system, once it has kind of taken care of it, there are cells that say, okay, you've done your job, let's quiet things down and let this person feel better. Immune checkpoint inhibitors take that break away. And what we're trying to do is take the break away so that the immune system can recognize cancer. And the best known cancer for which that works right now is melanoma. Uh, Jimmy Carter is a beneficiary of that. He is alive today because of checkpoint inhibitors that allowed his immune system to react against his melanoma. The third part of this are T-cell therapy. And what I'm going to talk about now and what the introduction Jennifer talked about is, well, how do we take your T-cells and rather than having them react to the flu, 
how do we re-engineer them to react against your cancer? And that's what the last 10, 15 years of our lives have been about in the laboratory. So what are we talking about? We're talking about introducing new genes into your T cells that reprogram it not to recognize the flu or shingles or you know, whatever infection there might be, but to recognize something on the cancer that that person has. And the way we do it is that we, we, make, we have part of an antibody that recognizes something on a particular cancer, and we fuse it to a substance that connects to the inside of a T cell so that when this sees the target, it turns on the T cell. It thinks it's seeing the flu, but it's actually being activated because it saw a tumor cell that was bound by this. So I'll show you. So at the top are T cells that are hanging around a bunch of brain tumor cells. That's what these elongated things are, and these little dots that you can barely see are T cells. Nothing's happening. The tumor's growing. On the bottom are those same tumor cells that have been engineered, and the T cells have been engineered to recognize them, and it's going to gang up on them and clear the plate. All right. That is what we want to happen inside a patient. We want to engineer the immune system so that the cell, when it sees that tumor cell, reacts to it as if it's seeing a cell infected with the flu virus. Only it's not the flu it's reacting to, it's something on the uh, tumor cell. So what do we do? When a patient needs the types of therapy that we're attempting to develop, they will come to us, we will collect their T cells. Here, we will take them to the laboratory and we will activate them, get them dividing. And then we will take a virus. Actually, it's a variant of the AIDS virus that's been you know, disabled. But what it does is it contains a gene that will put this recognition moiety or this substance in the T cell. So if the T cell sees this thing, it will react and, and uh, react against the cancer as, as it did before. Once we've done this, we then take it to a, a laboratory upstairs and we grow them into gigantic numbers, a billion cells. And then once we've grown them up over a few weeks, we put them back into the patient. And what we want is those cells to now go find the cancer that's causing the trouble in the, uh, in the first place. So what happens then is once we collect the cells here, we apherese, it takes a few weeks to do this, we then bring them into the hospital and give them some chemotherapy to kind of make room for these cells to get where they're supposed to go. We infuse the cells, and then hopefully within a month, they're in remission. That's the holy grail for what we do. Now, that's the laboratory part. The patient experience, however, can be pretty daunting. You might think, well, why, if it's like the flu, why are you putting them in the hospital? And the reason is when you bring somebody in who has a lot of cancer in their body for what we do, and you put these cells in, there's a lot of activity. The cells are running all over the place looking for the cancer cell. Kill it, kill it, kill it, kill it. 
what you saw on that plate is going on inside that body. And it makes a lot of things happen. It causes headache, it causes liver problems, it messes up the blood counts, it makes the heart beat fast. People can be really, really sick. And we have a team that's just trained to take care of people who are undergoing this. This is called a cytokine release syndrome. And it can go on for a while. It's, it's I don't mean to frighten you, it frightens us, um, until that quiets down, just like the flu goes away. And it usually takes a couple of weeks, which is while they're in the hospital, and why we have teams of nurses and physicians who, who take care of these people to get them through this phase until this whole thing kind of quiets down. All right, let me show you some examples of how this works in real. So I said that we take a little antibody fragment that will recognize something on a cancer cell. The first one that we did was something called CD19. It's an antigen that's found on lymphoma and is found on certain types of leukemia. And that's what this shows it, on a disease called B-cell ALL or large cell lymphoma or CLL. What they have in common is they all express that. So we figured, well, why don't we make CAR T cells that recognize CD19 and we can treat leukemia, we can treat lymphoma. It's an economy of scale, if you will, with the viruses that we make. Um, and so this, is, this has been the poster child that I'm going to show you what's done. So that process that I talked about putting a new gene inside the T cells so will recognize something on the cancer. In this setting, we're putting in a new gene that will help that T cell recognize CD19 wherever it might be in that person's body. So the case. So this is a young woman who came to us with what's called refractory. It, didn't res it had relapsed multiple times, acute leukemia. She'd had chemo, a double cord transplant, chemo, a second transplant, a new drug, a new immune therapy, and still the disease was there. Right? So she shows up on our doorstep asking if we can help her. And this is really quite at the beginning of what we were doing in this area. So we collected her T cells, we took them to the lab, we added the virus, we got the virus inside their cells, grew up the cells, and gave them to her. And at the time we started, all this brown color here is a stain for leukemia in the bone marrow. And you can see the whole bone marrow is brown which meant that the whole bone marrow is replaced by leukemia. And this is just, uh, this blue here is just on another gadget, um, a way of assessing what percentage of the cells are leukemia. And this quadrant here should be empty. On the other hand, in this lady, it was full. So we did her chemo, like I told you about. We did her um, uh, infused her cells. And she got very sick, just like I said. This is her fever curve. And the first, you can see there was a big wave of fever, and then it went away, down, and then it came back. And so she required, this is an example of just how sick somebody can get. It's a sign of that. It's part of that cytokine release uh, syndrome, and they require a lot of, um, a lot of support. All right? So she got her chemo beforehand, we put 200 million cells in, and then at 28, day 14, we did a marrow, and it wasn't brown, uh, excuse me, it wasn't brown afterwards, and at 28 days, um, there were no blasts, 
and all of the cells were normal looking and she was in complete remission for the first time in her life. So people around the country who were doing this and there were a lot of us, this is what we were trying to do. And the people we were seeing with leukemia were people who had run out of other options. And this was a very phase one early, who knows how it's gonna work, how well it's gonna work. And um, she went on and has done well. So around the country, and the biggest places that are doing this are in New York, Pennsylvania, the National Cancer Institute, the uh, Seattle Cancer Center at, at, uh, in Seattle, and at City of Hope. And our most recent trial, which is now 15 adults, the response rate has been 100%. I, I have not done any therapy in cancer for which the response rate was 100%. Uh, so I'm just glad I've been around long enough to have experienced this uh, with people. And so we are in the process of trying to help more and more people um, with this and trying to figure out how to do it earlier to avoid some of these really dramatic uh, settings. So this young lady, um, it's not our patient, this was the first patient treated with CAR T cells in the United States. Uh, uh, this is Emily Whitehead, she's very famous. She's a friend of Barack Obama. She's a friend of, you know, the coach of this team and that team, she's very well known because she uh, excuse me, was deathly ill, had no other option, and our friends at Penn treated her with CAR T cells, and she nearly died in the experience, just from what I was describing to you. But she went into remission, and this is Emily as she's aged. This is now seven years later. She's uh, in high school. Um, having had end-stage leukemia, and it just, you don't see that. End-stage cancer, you know, there's divine intervention. That's almost what this looks like from time to time to us. Um, and it shows she's just carrying a play. You can see she's grown from this little girl into a young woman. Um, but she's the inspiration for a lot of what we have done. Her, her, her family, our patients. Um, and it's the reason we're doing this, the work in this disease. And a lot of other kids uh, got this therapy. And many of them, this is the survival curve I was showing you before, about 40% of them are alive and in remission a year out, which is a long time if you have relapsed leukemia. And a proportion of them, like Emily, appear to be cured with end-stage disease. And it led ultimately to the approval by the FDA of a cellular therapy, not a drug. Some people say this is a living drug. These are live cells that can do all this. And it's now approved for patients up to the age of 25 years because the first trials were done in children. And we're hoping that this will be the year that they approve it for adults with leukemia because it is a disease that we see and we'll be thrilled if that's the case because it'll allow us to do more and more. The problem, as you probably can tell, and there's a lot of, if you read the Wall Street Journal and the business page, the problem with this is that. So there's a lot of things you gotta do, to, a lot of pressure you gotta bring to bear to get this paid for in any given patient, and we work on it, and we expect the price will come down. This is, a, this is also a CD19 disease, this is lymphoma. This is a, a patient who had lymphoma and lymph, all this black here is disease. It's not only 
in the liver and the spleen and the stomach and lymph nodes. It's on the bones. It's in the, um, in the skin. And he got CAR T cells that we made, CD19. And this is day minus 17. And then 35 days later, all the black is gone. I mean, what's there is what's supposed to be there. His bladder, his kidneys, his heart. And so it's another example of another disease, namely lymphoma, that's CD19 positive, that patients can go into a remission. And there was a trial done in the United States, and it's the same kind of result. You can see that there's a proportion of people who got this therapy who are alive and in remission uh, several years later. I was at the Rose Parade on um, New Year's Day. Um, and a guy rode his bicycle up to me and says, you don't recognize me. I said, no, I'm sorry, I don't. Um, and he was somebody who had gotten CAR T cells for lymphoma at City of Hope three years before, um, and not a therapy afterwards. And so it's, when it works, it's pretty magical. And he was an example of living you know, a normal life, which is what we want for anybody who comes to us for cancer care. All right, so that's CD19 disease, that's leukemia, that's lymphoma. They are the poster kids and adults for what we want to try to do. The challenge for us, and this, this got approved also for lymphoma, and it's not as expensive, but it's still pretty uh, pricey. So leukemia and lymphoma it's of a certain type, CD19 positive, you can use CAR T cells for that. But the challenge is what about the rest of cancer? One of the phrases I use when I, I talk to people is that our job at City of Hope and around laboratories around the country is to make this therapy not a one-trick pony, that it works for one disease or two diseases. What we want is a therapy that can work for many diseases. So our program is focused on how to extend what we saw in leukemia and lymphoma to other diseases and solid tumors breast cancer, brain cancer, prostate cancer, they are tougher nuts to crack for reasons that I'm going to explain to you in a minute, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try, and I'll show you some what we can do. So why not start with the easiest one? And I say this very facetiously. This is brain tumors. This is the disease for which the therapeutics have not changed a whole lot, and they've changed some uh, since I've been in oncology. Um, and so my, my partners, this is Christine Brown, who's my research partner for the last 15 years, and Benham Badi, who is uh, chief of our neurosurgery department. I work with him for the last 15 years in an effort to try to bring CAR T cell therapy to people who have brain tumors because their options are, are crummy. And it's what you know. This is a, a mass. You can see how fast it can grow in a person's brain. And it's not as if it spreads throughout the body. That's the really pissy thing about this. You know, we tend to think of cancer as something that can spread around the body, and that's what makes people sick and makes them die. This is a disease that stays confined to one place, but because of where that place is, is, is what makes it so crummy. So, you know, it's invasive. Um, it induces injury. You know, I like, when I talk about it, I think we think of the brain as who we are. You know, the nature of personality, the seat of the soul in there. And when there's a brain tumor there, it robs a person even more than other types of cancer of who they are. Um, and you can see the survival 
has not changed a whole lot, although there's clearly odd cases. So in looking at brain tumors, we identified that they express this IL-13 receptor alpha-2. It doesn't matter what it is, but it's expressed on brain tumors. So we figured, well, we made a car against CD19. Why don't we make a car against IL-13 receptor alpha-2, which is what we did. Okay? And so this is that same construct, except it's not CD19. It's IL-13 receptor that we're teaching the T cell to respond to. So when it sees it, it proliferates and grows. Now, one of the differences I want to just alert you to, because I'm going to show this to you in a minute, we tend to give all these cells for leukemia lymphoma in the vein, and the cells will go find the disease. We did a lot of experiments over a lot of period of time in brain tumors and came to the conclusion that rather than putting it in the bloodstream and having the cells try to find their way into the brain, why don't we just put the cells directly into the brain? which was a big deal at the time we did it. If you don't think we were nervous as hell um, in general, that was a day that we really did. So we did experiments to show that it would work, and then we proposed to the FDA that we do this in, in people. So that's the construct, that's the car. And we, we showed in animal experiments, that if we gave our CAR T cells directly into the brain, we could cure the mice. And if we did it in the bloodstream, we didn't cure them. So it sort of supported the idea, like, try it and see what happens. It seemed safe to do. And so we had a protocol. We have a protocol. We have multiple protocols now for people with brain tumor um, where we inject the cells directly into the spinal fluid in the ventricle of the brain that circulates around the brain, percolates through, and takes our cells throughout the brain. And we do this three to six times until we run out of cells and then see what happens. Now, brain tumors are not leukemia. They are much harder to get rid of with this type of stuff, and I'm going to show you why. But I'm going to show you a case, like I showed you with leukemia lymphoma, that keeps us in this game. I don't mean it's a game, but I think you know what I mean when I say that. That doesn't daunt us. Um, so this is a, a surgeon, actually, a pediatric urologist from Seattle that came to us with recurrent uh, GBM, glioblastoma multiform. And this is where his tumors were. They were right there and right there and right there. And so we injected these CAR T cells into the ventricle, um, right in front of us. And about a month later, we repeated the scan, and this area, which is tumor, if you go over here, is gone. And this thing that's stuck behind his spinal cord is gone. And this area here is also gone. Now, that was our first experience of seeing a brain tumor disappear with CAR T cells. Um, I, the chief of neurosurgery was looking at it someplace else. Christine was looking at it in her office. I was looking at it in my office. And we both, all three of us, were pretty you know, overwhelmed by what we were seeing because it, it seemed like it couldn't be true. But it was. And you could see this is really just summarizing the volume of all the tumors. 
And you can see over a period of time, they went away. And they stayed gone for eight months. You know, it wasn't a home run, but it showed that the CAR T cells could mediate an anti-tumor response and that we're on some road that hopefully will take us to the light. The odd thing is when we squirted these cells into the brain, remember I talked about the cytokine release syndrome that people got in their blood? We were scared as hell that what if we set that off inside somebody's brain? Uh, but we didn't see that. They don't get that sick for reasons we could talk about, but they did not. And so that's why we've kept this approach about going into the brain itself. All right. So you're probably wondering, as we wondered, well, why did it come back? Why didn't it eliminate everything? And I'm going to show you what cancer does that drives us insane. All right. This is a stain that shows the brown, which is the IL-13 receptor alpha-2, at the time that we treat him with the CAR-T cells. It's positive. You can see it there. Not every cell, but most cells have this, this target. When he recurred, we biopsied the tumor, and none of the cells had it. It's as if we selected, or the tumor said, well, I'm just going to shut that off and grow. And it grew back with a tumor that looked very different in its recurrence than it did when we treated it. And so what we learned, which we sort of knew and predicted, is you'd have to box the cancer in. So what we're doing is it was HER2 positive, and then it became EGFR positive, not that these letters mean anything. So we're making cars against this, this, and this, and the goal is put them all in there at the same time and box the tumor in. So if it says, well, I'm just going to shut that off and express this, well, we have a cell there ready to hit it. That's what we're trying to do right now. And that's the trials that are ongoing at the City of Hope right now for a lot of these patients to try to box the tumor in. Or if they do recur, have this cell ready to go or that cell ready to go as if for multiple therapies. You can see it's a long, arduous road. All right. I'm just going to finish up by showing you some other examples because human cancers in the adult, look, we're all, we've all been around a while. We've all had friends, family, colleagues, people we don't know ex experience these diseases, and it covers every organ of the body. Um, I have a personal interest in this particular disease in breast cancer. Um, and this is for women who have a particular gene, HER2, that's overexpressed. And those women have a particular propensity to have the disease go to the brain. So we made a CAR T cell recognizing HER2. And we showed that if we put those cells in the brain, we'll cure all the mice. Put it in the bloodstream, we don't cure any of the mice. And so we now have a trial open for women who are coming to us who have HER2 positive breast cancer. And we're putting the cells in the brain right now to see if we can get what they have wrong to be made right by eliminating the disease. And we think we've got a better chance with them because those cells tend not to shut off the HER2 gene. So maybe we've got a better chance that it's not gonna figure out how to get around what we're doing. Same thing, we're putting the cells in the brain multiple times. Saul Priceman, one of the other scientists in our laboratory, is leading these efforts in women with breast cancer with me. We're doing it also in Prostate cancer, so we're curing these mice. 
So the red is a tumor. And you can see, if you don't put the right cell in, it takes over. You put the right cell in, if this is the tumor, we can get it to go away. So we want to do that in guys with prostate cancer and women with ovarian cancer. So really trying, as I said, make it more than just a CD19 therapy, but a therapy that could be used effectively for people with other types of cancers. And, you know, at our program, I think you can see we're focused on all the blood cancers. And we have CAR T cells for lymphoma and ALL, AML myeloma, CLL. And now we're working on glioblastoma, breast, prostate, ovarian, pancreas clearly is a biggie. We have a trial for liver cancer, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, and then non-cancer, um, I'm not going to talk about that tonight, but we have this project using CAR T cells to get rid of the HIV virus, which is a whole other uh, story. So what does the future look like? Well, the future, I hope, looks like CAR T cells for multiple diseases. But one of the things that we struggle with in the leukemia patients in particular, I told you it took a month, basically, to collect the cells, grow them up, make them to big enough numbers and put them in. We have a patient with relapsed leukemia sitting there. We have to keep them somehow together. And that doesn't always work. Sometimes the disease overwhelms them and takes them from us before we even have a chance. So what we want to develop is what's called an off-the-shelf CAR T-cell, one that can be genetically engineered, that can be used for anybody in this room. And that's a big project that's going on in multiple places around the country to be able to do so we could go to our, quote, pharmacy and take the cell out and infuse it into the patient without having to wait for three or four weeks to make it. And we're working with our cells and with companies uh, to make that happen. So it's a shorter delivery time off the shelf. And it's done by engineering. And there was a lecture here because I saw the, the, the title earlier this year about CRISPR and how to use CRISPR to take out genes and put in genes. That's exactly what we're doing utilizing CRISPR and its relatives to genetically engineer the T-cell to be something that will go into anybody. And that's what we're doing. And the last slide to show you to finish up this evening is really, you know, I've been blessed since I started in this back in the 70s. Uh, but this is our current lab group. Um, uh, they wanted to wear sunglasses because they say we are the coolest program at the City of Hope. <laughs> and we are. Um, between transplant and immunotherapy. Um, it's a lot of uh, scientists and um, uh, nurses, clinicians, uh, data managers. It's a whole lot of people. Even my boss, Dr. Mike Caligieri, who is an immunologist, we consider him part of this program also to help bring cancer immunotherapy as the fourth arm between surgery, chemotherapy, radiation. And if we have our dreams realized, immunotherapy will be the first thing people get for the cancers they have. So thank you for coming out tonight to listen to this. <laughs>